Oh, goodness. Uh, John, how was your trip to Long Island? Just lovely. Mm -hmm. Do you like the beach? I hear you're plugging your phone in. I am. I'm really muted when I do that, when you ask me a question, so now you get to hear. Behind the scenes, I plug in my phone so it charges while I record. It's exciting. Why? Why not just do that when you go to bed? I do. How long of a time span is it between when the podcast ends and when you go to bed, usually? You never know. Vacation was good. Anything interesting to report? You rented a camera. Would you like to, or yeah, a whole camera, right? Would you like to talk about that at all? Yeah, a camera and a bunch of lenses. This was Marco's recommendation of what camera I should rent. And the only reason I was doing it at all is because my wife is going off on a cruise with her mother, uh, which is a thing to do. Maybe we'll talk about it later. Um, and she decided that our camera is not good enough because she's had too much uh, proximity exposure to Marco's fancy cameras and other people's <laughs> fancy cameras. And it's like, rubbing off on her so she's like we should get a better camera and I'm like, i don't want to get it better she's gonna go on this vacation and she wants to have good pictures and she doesn't feel like our camera is up to the task i think our camera is plenty up to the task uh but she disagrees so uh, i don't want to buy a new camera but uh, i know marco rents camera so i asked him about his the camera rental service that he uses and he gave me the url and suggested a camera that we should rent because we didn't want something as big as Marcos. Marcos is not big. It's not as big as like the, the 5D or like it's not like a giant uh, full frame SLR. But yeah, it, it's about as big as a mirrorless camera can get and still be a mirrorless camera. <laughs> yeah, it's still it's still full frame, but it doesn't have the mirrors in it. To add some clarity here, since everybody will be asking, the site that I recommended you rent from is LensRentals.com. There are a couple other sites. That's the one I've used uh, a lot over like same here. Oh, geez, I don't know, maybe over a decade. It, 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 I've used it for a long time. Um, they've been great. No complaints. I've rented both lenses and entire cameras from them. They've been great. LensRentals.com. This is not a sponsorship. The camera I recommended that you rent is the Sony a6300. It is Sony's new high-end but still crop sensor uh, mirrorless camera. It runs a little, I think like 1200 bucks, something in that range. Uh, it's, it's a very, very good camera. It's a, it's about as good as you can get without being a full frame sensor. Uh, the camera that I have is the Sony a seven R two, which is a full frame sensor is a lot more money, but is a lot bigger and is a lot higher quality images. But the, uh, a 6,300 that I had John rent is incredibly good. And I would say if you're looking for a mirrorless camera in the like thousand dollar range, that seems like it would be a really it should be very high on your list uh that said i have not actually used it this is all based on review info and experience with other sony cameras so john how is the a6300 well uh, looking at it compared to your camera i was surprised to see that there are a couple specs where the smaller lesser camera uh, is better for instance a uh, number of photos it can take per second for burst mode is like double the maybe even triple from the, in the highest uh setting what yours does um and I think it had, I don't know what these specs mean, but like the number of areas of phase detection for autofocus was higher on this thing. Like there's, there's a couple of attributes that make me think that this camera and this sensor came out after yours. Is that the case? They did, yeah. And also when you have a smaller, and yeah, they came out, I think it was like six months or maybe a year after mine. And uh, well, yeah, about between six and nine months, I think after mine. And uh, also when you have a, so a full frame sensor is a lot larger it's i think it's 60 percent larger by area something like that it's, it's double the megapixels too yours is 42 this is 24 so it's close to double right right and so when you have a larger sensor and you have more pixels it is it is much harder to make the surrounding electronics able to deal with the sensor dumping like 
100 photos a second off of it. And so usually the smaller sensors will have higher slow-mo video frame rates and higher burst uh, per second capacity simply because there's a lot less data to deal with and that has to be pulled off that sensor. Yeah, and the reason we weren't looking at Marco's camera specifically is not particularly because it's too expensive because the whole idea was we were going to rent it, but just because it's it's big and, you know, we're going from a much smaller... It's, it's all relative. Well, much smaller, much lighter camera, non-interchangeable lens camera. We have, always have super zooms and they're all made of plastic, so they're very light and uh, they're, they're small. And if you're going to be walking all over Europe... Maybe you don't want to go right from a small light camera to something as big as Marcus, which again is not as big as a as a full frame SLR, but it's still pretty big. And the whatever the magnesium aluminum body is not as heavy as like a steel body or something, but it's way heavier than a plastic one. So this was a kind of a good choice for like it's going to take good pictures, but it, it's really it's a very small body. Like it's so small that a lot of the lenses look comical. On it. Like a lot of the Sony's have looked like this, like they were the NEX series and all that. They always looked like the lens was too big for the body because Sony made these very small, that's what you can do with mirrorless cameras, very small looking bodies with pretty good sensors in them, sometimes to a fault because my, my brother has one of the earlier Sonys and it was very often difficult to hold them, like to find a place where you could grip them. And Sony was making them kind of like their PlayStation controllers, like little pieces of art made of like conical sections <laughs> and ideal solids and stuff, instead of saying, no, you have to, you have to make it grippy. So that's why when I used Marco's camera, when I first saw his, I was happy to see that sony has learned hey you should put grippy stuff on the part where you grip it's got like nice grippy rubber you know like camera grip stuff if you make the whole thing a smooth beautiful rectangle with a little bulge it falls out of your hand and you're sad um so the a6300 is basically like a shrunken version of marco's it's very small it's still relatively heavy but most of the weight is in the lenses if you use a larger lens and the lenses i got was the, the silly little kit lens that it comes with which is like a I forget it was like, like 15 to 50 or something power zoom something like that yeah something like that it's a, it's a it's a very small zoom range it's a very compact uh lens and it doesn't seem to be very good um and i got a 50 millimeter prime and i got a what was it 30 to 140 to 105 zoom all of these were sony branded lenses that's another possible issue with these things is that supposedly the sony can take third-party lenses and do autofocus on them but marcos has the advantage that all of the image stabilization stuff is in the body not in the lens is this correct i'm, I'm not that's right well it's both i mean the, a lot of the lenses have it but but yeah it mine has uh in-body stabilization right and this one doesn't so it relies somewhat on its ability to work with lenses but there's a bunch of adapters for the lenses stuff but anyway i just got sony lenses and i use it on vacation normally on my long island vacations i take pictures you know, just of the family hanging around at the beach, but I also take a lot of pictures of my family playing in the ocean. And when I take those pictures, I'm usually up to my knees or my waist in the ocean, in the ocean waves, in the surf. And that's not a really good place to be with an expensive camera. I've always <laughs> assumed that one year a wave will get me and I will drop my camera, but what is, I don't know, we're going on five years, 10 years. So far, it has not gotten me and the streak continues. Uh, but I plan to not even bring the fancy camera to the ocean because I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll use that one for all the pictures except the ocean pictures. And also, by the way, my super zoom is a 600 millimeter zoom. It's ridiculous. Like it helps me get when the surf is like far out. I can be up to my knees and they can be way far out and I can still get close up. So I really I really like my camera. My super zoom, by the way, is the Canon FZ 200. Um, but when it came down to it, I'd taken so many pictures with the Sony, I didn't want to leave it at home. So I brought it to the beach with me. In fact, I brought both cameras to the beach. I took a bunch of pictures with my other camera. And I'm like, you know what? I could probably take a few with the Sony. Maybe go a little deeper. Maybe go up to my knees. Go up to my, <laughs> you know. 
I t- the main thing that was holding me back in the Sony is the zoom was just not, you know, it was only 105 millimeters. It's not, it wasn't getting me close enough. It was, so some of the pictures were kind of far away, right, but then it gets 24 megapixels compared to whatever 12 or whatever my other thing is. So I could crop a lot of them to get the same uh, image quality out of it. But I kept it out of the ocean. I think I got a couple of drops of water splashed on it, but none on the lens. I'm pretty good at staying away from all that and protecting the camera. Uh, and the results were really nice. And I really liked it, and she's definitely going to bring it on her vacation. The only decision I have now is whether we're going to rent it again for her vacation or just buy it. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I should point out that Lens Rentals has an incredibly uh, broad insurance t- uh, add-on that you can buy. So that would cover, I I think, it would cover your ocean fears. Uh, you have to pay 10% still. I paid for like whatever the most expensive insurance was against damage and theft, but even, even if the worst happens, you still have to pay 10%. And I had like, what was it, like a $600 lens, $150 lens, $100 lens, and a $1,000 body or whatever. So 10% of that is still something I didn't want to pay. So how many lenses did you say you rented? Just three, just the prime, the zoom, and the little kit lens thing. Because I didn't know which one I would end up using more of it. As it turns out, what I ended up using was I almost never used the little kit lensy thing because I had two optically better <laughs> lenses with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indoors, I used the prime because it was the it was a f one point eight. It was the the one that took the best low light pictures. And outdoors, I used the zoom, even though it was relatively huge, just because it gave me the most flexibility. And and in all fairness your your battle between like the the reach of the super zoom and the quality of the of the nice camera in all fairness i did recommend that you consider the sony rx10 which is its super zoom but it's not doesn't have the same reach as this one i'm like am i going to get a super zoom i'm not going to get one that stops at 400 or something the rx10 uh, 2 uh, maybe does go to 600 but there was some other aspect of it that was worse than my camera i think the most recent one actually might go out that far it, it got a pretty big update but it doesn't. It's not f two point eight through the whole zoom range, like like this thing is. No, that's pretty rare. I mean, it basically to achieve that, you have to have a very small sensor. I know. Well, then I do. So anyway, um, like there's, there's not. Not only is there no Sony Super Zoom that I can get at any price that I feel like has better feature set, universally better than the one I have, but there's no Panasonic one. The Panasonic upgraded my camera too and made it worse, like for for my purposes. But anyway, the that's the problem with the zoom lenses. The problem with all the Sony lenses is that. I don't know. The lenses get expensive really fast. There's no sort of... Maybe I could talk to you about what lenses I should get if I actually buy this thing. But there's no reasonably expensive zoom lens above, like, 100-something millimeter zoom. Like, forget about a 600. Forget about a 400. I mean, I think I can get, like, a 400 for $12,000. That's how much I can. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean... So, you know, the problem is, like, what you're looking at here is you're looking at a lens system that spans from prosumer to really like low to kind of mid-range pro uh the sony full frame sensors like the the a7 series have become very popular very quickly uh among high-end users and you know we can have lots of debates over like whether they are considered pro cameras or not but it's kind of like you know asking like whether the ipad is a computer like you know whether or not they are pro cameras by some people's definitions they are still being used by a lot of pros for professional use so it doesn't really matter whether you think they're a pro camera or not um because they are just incredibly good and incredibly compelling it for a lot of reasons uh anyway so the problem is that when you have these large very dense very high quality sensors you need really good lens glass in front of those to be able to resolve enough detail to really take advantage of, the, of what those sensors have to offer. And so when you can look at like your little super zooms and super zooms, you know, they, they sacrifice 
a lot of image quality and optical quality to be able to put a large zoom range into a relatively compact and relatively inexpensive body. That's that's not really possible to, you know, like it's like something has to give there. If you're going to have to serve a very large, nice sensor with lots of megapixels of detail and not have a bunch of distortion in the image, I mean, some of that you can correct with software, but, you know, still try to avoid it if you can, um, then you you have to either shorten the range in order to have less glass that needs to be in place to get that high-quality image onto this high-quality sensor without distorting, or you have to put just a ton of glass in front of that thing, tons of like highly engineered you know lens elements and these very expensive, very large, very heavy lenses. Uh, and so it's it's just this, this trade-off between all these different factors of like, well, if you want to have something that is small and light and probably cheap and also has big zoom range, it can't have good optical quality. And if you want something that is small with good optical quality, you should really be probably using a prime. Uh, if you want something large with good optical quality and, and you have an unlimited budget uh, and, you know, you, you don't mind carrying these giant heavy lenses, the lenses you see in the new high-end Sony FE lineup, that's the market they're targeting. They're targeting, like, the Canon L series lenses and stuff and whatever the, the Nikon, I forget what the Nikon Pro ones are called. They're targeting that market of like pro photographers, the people you see on the sidelines of like sports games, the giant white lenses. Like they're targeting that market now because their their cameras are so good, they're starting to be used in that kind of industry, which is pretty impressive for a mirrorless to begin with. But anyway, um, so for what you're looking for, you you should probably honestly consider the RX10, their super zoom, or at least only use or only consider using the Sony for for occasions in which you don't really need massive reach of of a telephoto zoom because that's just like you're looking at a market that is designed for very different needs and is optimizing for very different factors in that trade-off of lens design uh you're trying to get out of that market like a, like you know a 600 millimeter lens like try to find a 600 millimeter canon l lens and you will see quite how you know quite what this what the, this kind of quality and what this kind of market is like uh it's you know they get pretty ridiculous pretty fast i would say this is kind of like your mac pro versus gaming pc thing right it's like you, you kind of want the impossible out of out of this high-end thing but what you really actually need is a low-end thing no there's no 2008 mac pro equivalent this 2008 <laughs> mac pro was perfect in 2008 did everything uh, but no, like, so what I learned on the vacation is that I'm willing to give up the zoom range for the better quality. Because first of all, with the Prime, this can take pictures indoors that nothing else I have could take. And this is the reason I never wanted to get a high-end camera, because you get used to it and you're like, well, now I can't go back. How can you go back from using, you know, a, a reasonably good camera for indoor photography? Like, you can't go back because all the pictures, are, other pictures are garbage indoors because there's no light. And yep. your phone can't get the light and nothing else can. And, you know, so... And then, and then at the beach, when I had the choice between both cameras, I had them both right there. I was using both of them. Eventually, by the, the last day we were at the ocean, I just didn't even take out the Panasonic the whole time. I just used the Sony the whole time. Uh, you know, and by that, I, uh, then I was brave enough to go in the water with it. And I didn't mind the fact that I was a little bit farther away because the, the you know, had more megapixels and I could crop them if I really needed to. But in the end, even if I was a little bit farther away, the increased image quality was was worth it to me. Um, I mean, so maybe I like a little bit bigger zoom and maybe I can, you know, I'll shop around, but like I'm, I'm looking at Sony's lenses now, they're 500 millimeter. This, you're right that the signal is when the lens is white, run away. There's probably like a rhyme. There. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when, when the lens is white, the price is not right. The 500 millimeter F4G SSM, whatever those letters stand for, $12,999. 
So I don't think I'll be skipping that lens. There's also the size of a truck. Like it's also a bad sign when the <laughs> lens itself is the thing that mounts to the tripod and not the camera because now the camera is just <laughs> hanging off the end of the lens. These are all bad signs for your budget. Um, ooh, a 300 millimeter one for only 7,500. Anyway, <laughs> I'll probably just end up getting this camera with the kit lens and a prime and then save up for a zoom. Um, because I mean, I enjoyed it that much. Like it, it was, it was heavier, but not that much heavier and the size wise it was okay ergonomically and ui wise i still think cameras have a long way to go like i mean i recognize that this is a big improvement over the old sony's because again my brother had an older one like this is this is better it doesn't have a touch screen which would help but camera manufacturers need to need to get over the idea that the the best way to arrange all your options is in a big linear list over a series of screens like this one has tabs and then within each tabs there's a number line like search results that has seven <laughs> screens and it's just a bunch of text things like that's not yep. it's mm-hmm. it's organized kind of but you can imagine a much better ui to organize these because i could never remember where the hell is the feature this thing like they weren't organized in any logical way other than like these are the camera settings these are the ones under gear these are settings but not camera related set it's just it's a terrible organization uh, but at least they've gotten on the bmw page and said look we put a bunch of buttons on this thing and most cameras do this but apparently sony's been bad about this in the past we have a bunch of buttons you can program them all to do anything you want we printed something next to the buttons that have little you know abbreviations that tell you what they do by default but if you don't like that you can make any button do anything for the most part uh which is another business interface like what do you want this button to do scroll through this list of literally 70 options and find the thing you want <laughs> it's it's really terrible and then everything cameras want to do on camera like there's a tab that says apps just no sony there are no apps that i want to run i want your (laughs) camera to take pictures maybe on camera convert to jpeg which by the way this one doesn't even do it's just the raws you have to pull off um but everything else wait what it doesn't convert to uh you can't do like in-camera conversion where you shoot in raw and then uh fiddle with it uh and then do a conversion to jpeg before you pull it off oh okay that's what you mean you can shoot JPEG plus RAW, you can shoot RAW, yeah. you can shoot JPEG, but a lot of cameras have a thing where you shoot in RAW and then on the camera, screw with the whatever you're going to screw with to get the, you know, pull out the detail from the shadows and blah, 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 and then just pull off JPEGs that are burned in like that. Why would you want to do that? Okay, well, to okay. Save, yeah. To save room. <laughs> to, you know, because that's another thing. Like, and now I understand why my, my brother has the problem that he can't use uh, iCloud library because he has more than one terabyte of right. photos. And why does he have more than one terabyte of photos? Because he shoots RAW on his little Sony. And yeah, so, yeah, the, each, each of these RAWs is like 25 megs each compared to like yeah. three or four <laughs> megs uh, in, in JPEG and even smaller. And so I, I, I filled a 64 gig card and a little bit of another card. Yeah. I mean, in all fairness, uh, buying a larger SD card is probably a lot easier and they're pretty cheap now than having to fiddle with like taking up space on the camera. Because the other thing too is like, a larger sd card is is a is a gettable easily you know pretty easily thing uh what is not so easy is to get these cameras batteries to last very long when the screens are on and it's and i mean that's the one thing like sony i love my camera i love almost everything about it but the battery life is embarrassing and i have like all these different power saving tips like it has wi-fi but you can put it in airplane mode turn the wi-fi yeah i I did that immediately as soon as i took this out of the box yeah my camera has always been in airplane mode (laughs) like because the battery life is so bad i need all the help i can get (laughs) i had to turn the back screen on sunny day mode do you have yours i'm sure you don't have yours in sunny day mode because sunny day mode means means max brightness on the screen and guess what (laughs) i needed that because it was a sunny day at the beach otherwise i couldn't see a thing and i couldn't use the viewfinder 
viewfinder the whole time. Yeah, I, I usually, when I'm shooting, I will almost always be using the optical viewfinder uh, just because I, I prefer the additional detail that I'm able to see just because it is closer to my eye and there's no outside light coming in and everything else. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I recommend possibly giving up on the idea of zooms for the most part uh, because honestly, like, the trade-off is so big in terms of you know quality or size and and money like like you can get zooms that are you know and this is there's only very few of them that this is true for but you can get zooms that are about as good as as most primes they do exist but they're massive heavy and very expensive and there aren't that many of them most zooms you're giving up a lot of quality to get that zoom flexibility and you know if you think about like when you shoot with your iPhone you have a prime on there except for the next you know large iphone plus that's going to have the optical zoom but so you know when you shoot with your iphone you're shooting with effectively a 35 millimeter prime and you've been shooting with that 35 millimeter prime in your iphone for the last like you know seven years or whatever however long it's well you haven't john everyone else has. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know it's it's been a while and and we've gotten used to that and it's fine and it turns out that when you just have like a decent prime in the wide to normal range uh, you can get pretty much all of your photography done that that way, for, you know, most of the time, and it's great. And the trade off is worth it. Of like, well, if you have a prime here, then you can make this thing much smaller and cheaper and have higher quality and everything. Same thing is true for any size camera. Anybody listening, if you have a an SLR, anything with interchangeable lenses, if you don't have a prime lens, which means it's fixed at one focal length, you, you can't zoom it. It's you zoom with your feet. Uh, if you ha- if you don't have a prime lens. Whatever camera system you own, get the cheap 50 millimeter prime lens for it. There is, it, it is almost every camera system has something like this where it is 50 millimeter or whatever the equivalent is for your sensor size. Uh, usually it's f 1.8, and usually it's like a hundred bucks in that range. It's it's fairly inexpensive for a lens. The optical quality you can get out of those is it just kicks the butts of zoom lenses. It so and you know that like like you were saying earlier John, you that's the one you you were saying you were using indoors because when you're indoors or when you're you know when it's not that much light, you can really get a lot of light in there. And even when you have lots of light, the sharpness and the color and and just the optical quality that you get out of these lenses is amazing because they can be so much simpler than a zoom. Like just there's fewer elements, the elements, you know, they can afford to get higher quality optics in there at that price point when you don't have all those elements to to zoom things or to have a weird weird perspective or or the extreme you know wide or extreme narrow primes are just so nice like i found that even when i have a big camera i spend the vast majority of my time using primes and even when i've used zooms i mostly have not liked the pictures that i get from them the primes are just so much better and so i i urge anybody with cameras out there to consider just shooting with primes because it really is incredible and there are situations where you where you quote need a zoom but i bet there's a lot fewer of those than you expect and for a lot of camera owners you basically never have you basically never have those and a lot of those can be covered by renting yeah so we are going on a trip soon and i have rented a lens from lensrentals.com i did so a few days ago because i also use the lens rentals although probably a lot less frequently um i rented a 35 to 100 millimeter um uh zoom for my micro four thirds camera 
And I did that because I want to be able to be a creeper. Basically, I want to be able to capture uh, what I mean by that is uh, with my own family. Oh, God, taken out of context. That sounds terrible. Um, uh, yes. But, <laughs> dear God. Um, no, what I mean by that is so if we're all at a beach or if we're all in, in, in a rented house together, so it's only people I know, I don't want to have to get up in somebody's face um, in order to take a really good picture of them. I want to be able to be across the room where they don't even know I'm taking a picture. So it's a lot more natural. But that being said, generally speaking, the only lens that is ever on my camera is a 25 millimeter. I have no idea what the equivalent of, uh, of that is in a uh, SLR, but it's a 25 millimeter. I think it is a 50 equivalent. It, it, your pictures look just like 50 pictures. Okay. So it's a 25 millimeter F1.4 that uh, Sean Blanc had recommended. And it is very expensive. It was like $600. But it is a unbelievably phenomenally good lens to my eye. And I don't know crap about this stuff. And if I ever take a decent picture, it's because I've gotten lucky and because of this lens. And I rented this Zoom, just like Marco said, because I want to have something to take the pictures, you know, maybe in the surf or something like John was describing or or take pictures from across the room. But generally speaking, I never bother with a Zoom. And I do have the kit Zoom for this Olympus camera that I have. And it's freaking terrible. No, I can't give up on the zoom though. Like the one I was using, this is a cheap zoom lens, something like six hundred dollars, eighteen to one hundred five millimeter Sony uh, zoom lens. It's for it's for the APS-C format. It's not a full frame uh, lens, so maybe that's why it's cheaper. Um, and I was really happy with the pictures it took outdoors in the bright sunlight on the beach. And it's for the same reason Casey said. I'm most of the time I I like to have candid pictures, and either I don't want to or can't get close so like people are all around i can't get close to them if i do they start acting weird so i have to you know or they're far out far out in the water like they see you coming with the camera and they all turn and smile and ham it up and i like candid pictures better and so i can capture them like 100 millimeter zoom is enough for like in a outdoor gathering of people to get close enough to get groups of people as if you're right up next to them without being up next to them and the surf it's a little bit it's a little bit low but again i can i can crop um and I mean, to my eye, obviously, the the aperture wasn't like it was on the Prime. Like, so you couldn't, you know, open it up super wide and get the entire, you know, background nice and blurred and everything sharp. And, and maybe the and I had, you know, I had the little the F1.8 50 millimeter Prime that Marco was talking about, cheap, uh, but good. But I mostly outdoors, I use the big zoom. And I thought I would be bothered by how darn big it is. But it was I was able to wrangle it fairly easily and. I felt like it was worth it. Like that's that's the lens, believe it or not, that I ended up using the most. I thought I would end up using the Prime the most, but I ended up using this fairly large zoom the most. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll just get that same lens. It's only $600, but in the beginning, I'll probably just get the, the Prime and, and the kit lens. Or maybe I'll buy the body without the lens and just get the Prime for it just to save some money. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. We're sponsored this week by Casper, an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Go to casper.com slash ATP and use code ATP for $50 towards your mattress. Casper created one perfect mattress sold directly to you, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices at mattress stores. This award-winning mattress was developed in-house by Casper, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a remarkably small box. You can get it up narrow stairs. It's almost like a small file cabinet box. And now, in addition to the mattress, they also offer an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. Casper is revolutionizing the high markup mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature throughout the night, especially important in the summertime. 
Now, the Casper mattress is a shockingly fair price. Premium mattresses usually cost $1,500 or more, and they can be a lot more. But Casper mattresses cost just $500 for a twin, $750 for full, $850 for queen, and $950 for king. These prices are awesome for a premium mattress. That's like half the price of a similar quality mattress. And every Casper mattress is made right here in America. Now, Casper has made buying mattresses online easy. You might think... Why would you want to buy a mattress online? How do you know if it's going to be any good for you? Well, they have free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. It's it's very, very simple. There's no risk here. If you don't love it, they will pick it up at your house and give you a full refund within 100 nights. They understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to be spending a third of your life on it. So get yours today and try it for 100 nights in your own home. Free delivery and free returns if you don't like it with home pickup. Completely risk-free. Go to casper.com slash ATP and use code ATP for $50 towards your mattress. Thanks to Casper for sponsoring our show. Our days, Marco, of lording over John and feeling superior to him. I'm sad to say they're over because John now has a blue check mark. Oh, I was afraid you were going to say he finally got a new computer. Oh, God, no. Come on. Let's not get ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, John, congrats on your blue check mark, my friend. My computer's still better than yours, too, Casey. Mm, Is it? It doesn't crash. I was waiting for it. That's why I didn't say anything because I knew that was coming. Before we go to the check marks, what, what is the status of your computer? Has, has the problem recurred? It has not, and I haven't lost power for, uh, let's see, uh, six days, 14 hours, and 28 minutes. Still stock ramming it? Is your computer plugged into the UPS yet? No, it's not, because I didn't want to reboot it. That's why. Because <laughs> I, I wanted to keep this damn run going. Uh, it has not lost power. It has not rebooted. It's, it does still have the OEM RAM in it. So I am still, perhaps perhaps unfairly, I'm still convinced it's the uh, Mac sales RAM. Okay. Well, you should get a, get on getting that replaced then. Like, uh, did you well, download wanted... that Memtest uh, X64 thing that does like the super duper thorough RAM test? I did not. X86. Come on. <laughs> Whatever it is. I, that's what I that's what I said in my head, but my mouth did something different. You're such not a PC nerd. Every PC nerd <laughs> knows that. <laughs> I, that's what I said in my head, but the words came out differently. It's pronounced 1086. No, but what did I actually say? <laughs> you said X64. <laughs> oh, I was probably thinking, uh, you know. The modern instruction set. They should rename their memory <laughs> test. So anyway, the point is, this is uh, still going strong uh, on the on the OEM RAM, and whenever this thing decides to reboot itself, or I lose power next, or after like two to four weeks, I haven't decided what I consider to be a long enough run, then at that point, I will uh, officially start the RMA process with uh, Max Sales. Ha- didn't you have to install the the ten whatever six update recently? The the really critical security updates with the image parsing. Uh, I don't recall. I know what you're talking about. I don't recall if I did it or not. You should do that if you have. Yeah. Yet. Well. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll see. Maybe I'll just not use my computer for the next week, uh, so this way I don't have to reboot it. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But anyway, uh, so to come back on point, uh, John, you are verified. Congratulations. You are a sellout just like me. Uh, We are not good enough like Marco to have had received our check marks without solicitation. In all fairness, I did basically ask for it, just not directly. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's yeah, true. Yeah, he just did the, the informal version of the same thing that he did. Right? <laughs> but, yeah, but most importantly, now we are the uh, fully verified podcast, obviously. So is the analog, for that matter. Many fully verified podcasts are yeah. happening now. Mm-hmm. Let's just put that. Uh, by the way, uh, 
you know, so I got my check mark. Vatici did not get his. Brianna did not get hers. So there is still Renee. Renee didn't get his. Nope. He did he still rejected waiting. or just hasn't heard rejected. back yet? No, he got Reje- rejected. Rejected. I don't know what the world's coming to. I don't know what the hell's going on. Anyway, <laughs> there's still massive injustice in this world. There is. For those of us who don't actually need it on this podcast, guess what? We got it. Makes no sense. Oh, and people are asking me if I'm going to change my bio that I complained about, mostly on Rectifs, about having to write this, this silly bio. Now I'm afraid to change it because I'm afraid if I change it, I'll lose my check mark. <laughs> so I just I just have to leave this silly, silly, embarrassing bio there forever, or maybe just like give it a year and then it's safe for me to change it. I don't know. So do do I have to be influencer forever? <laughs> <laughs> I think you can change it. I just I'm not sure if if you make it go away if they'll get upset because part of what you have to do to have a right, blue exactly. check mark is to uh, is to have a bio. The funny thing about this whole experience for me is that I have apparently become I don't know how to put this. Maybe I, I've become like the litmus test for like oh pff, Casey got verified, of course insert person here should totally be verified so i saw that about renee i saw that about federico dude casey got verified of course (laughs) this person should be verified so that that's my new claim to fame i should change my bio i'm that guy you couldn't believe got verified that's me you just have to find someone who you think is even less deserving of being verified and then you just point to them yeah right god i don't know whatever but yeah so i get to see those tweets fly by like every, every every few hours Dude, Renee didn't get his thing? I can't believe that. Casey got one. Gah! My favorite thing is like how, how when people are just like backhand insulting you like this, they feel the need to uh, to mention you. <laughs> to right, mention exactly. You. <laughs> exactly. It's so true. Like, okay, if you want to think that, I mean, knowing me, I'll probably find it in a vanity search because hello. Uh, but <laughs> at least have the decency not to, uh, not to mention me. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so we are the Fully Verified Podcast, uh, and that's very exciting. All right, moving on. Uh, where is Tiff these days, Marco? Um, I don't know how to pronounce the more specific location. <laughs> However, the general location is France. Fair enough. Yeah, my yeah, Tiff, my wife is uh, on a vacation for the week, so I am solo parenting this week. How's that going? Well, I mean, it's only been like three days so far, so for these three days, it's been totally fine. Uh, but there's four more, something like that. Yeah, so there's still a while to go. I'm mainly finding it challenging that like. Like last night, you know, so last night was Sunday night and uh, he, he's in he's in like a school day camp, like just like, you know, day camp at his preschool because it's summertime. I, I have to pack his lunch every day. And I realized last night that like a big part of what, what we pack is fruit of some kind, like, you know, raspberries or strawberries or something. And there was just nothing in the fridge. So we had none. And he was already in bed. It was like 10 o'clock at night. Oh, and I'm no. like, well, also, Marco doesn't know where food comes from. <laughs> no, food usually comes from me going shopping for it, but I can't leave the house with him asleep. <laughs> you got to go shopping with the kid. Imagine that. Yeah, that's, that's what we did today. But yeah, so like, just, there's just like little things like that that, you know, like I had to realize like, oh, when you have two parents in the house, one of them can leave and go, go run an errand and you don't go to jail. You know, so it's <laughs> <laughs> so it's oh, it's been awesome. a slight learning experience like that. But otherwise, yeah, things have been going pretty. You know, like I've had him before alone. Just I think this is the longest span that we've ever had. Now, see the chat room. See, this is this is a rookie mistake here. So, uh, Sip in the chat room has suggested that I go food shopping while he is at camp. That is an interesting idea, Sip. I thought of that. However, then after school in the six hours before he goes to bed that's one less thing we could do together 
<laughs> we have a whole week here, <laughs> a whole week. So we got any any errand that I can run with him, I'm going to run with him. Yep, I know those feels, and that actually uh, segues uh, somewhat nicely into a brief bit of follow up I wanted to discuss, which was. Um, a uh, friend of the show, underscore David Smith, came down to visit on uh, Friday evening into Saturday morning. Uh, we watched The Hunt for October together because uh, it's one of the best movies in the entire world. Come at me. And uh, then Saturday morning, which is, I think you guys do Sunday, Marco, but in the in the List household, we do uh, Saturday morning into, uh, into nap time, uh, daddy time. And uh, Dave joined me on this, and uh, we took his Tesla to Cars and Coffee. Uh, it was uh, Underscore and Declan and myself. And we took the Tesla to Cars and Coffee, and it was funny because I had promised him that we would try to find the self-organizing group of Teslas that always shows up. There's typically three or four of them. I even saw a Model X there uh, one or two times ago, which was surprising. But anyway, we showed up in the Tesla, and I drove there, which I was slightly perturbed by only because I felt like this was Dave's big moment and uh, you know here it is you know he can get out of his car and be like yes well this is so not underscore style but yes look at me and my Tesla this is mine and I am proud of it uh, but instead <laughs> it was me instead it was me who got out of the driver's seat and of course uh, we we stepped out of the driver or I stepped out of the driver's seat within I kid you not 15 seconds somebody came running over to ask questions and I basically threw my hands in the air and waved them like I just don't care no I uh, threw my hands in the air and said dude it's his car uh, you should ask him about it but yeah it made quite a splash uh, people quite like it. Uh, we were backed in, as you do, because I'm not an animal, and I was backed in against a Maserati. Uh, so it was uh, pretty interesting. But it was funny how many people were just completely um, impressed by and, and interested in the Tesla. And perhaps even more surprisingly, really loved the rear jump seats. They really thought the rear jump seats were interesting, to the point that I think I think it was a kid. It was like 15, 18 year old, something like that. Um, asked if he could jump in the jump seats just to see how they, how they felt, how they felt, which uh, underscored because he's the nicest man alive was like, yeah, sure. Definitely. Uh, definitely feel free. But it was funny. And uh, underscore is, is hysterical watching him do this because he's like the most easygoing guy. Meanwhile, I wouldn't be able to hide the fact that my, you know, my plumage had come out in full force, if you will, <laughs> if it were me, but underscore is just like, yeah, you know, it's a thing. He's just so much better than I am. He's just way cooler than all of us. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, What a nice car, though. I kind of am mad at him now because I've forgotten how much I hate my car. Or I had forgotten how much I hate my car. And then I drove his Tesla again, and now I hate my car again. You have a very nice car. Just the Tesla's better. I have a wonderful car. (laughs) I truly do. But, uh, God, the Tesla's so nice. I saw a white M3 today and thought of you. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> a new one or an older one? That was the last generation, the one that you like, but it was the, the okay. two-door like convertible. I think it was convertible. It was at least two-door, so it was like the, the weird one. Snap question. I know we're not really in the neutral part of the show, but I have to ask. A uh, friend, uh, friend of the show, uh, who will remain nameless, has been debating between M2 and uh, Boxster S. What do you think? Uh, so with the caveat that I've driven neither, I would say, I mean, those are very different cars. Like the Boxster is like, you know, it's convertible, I assume, right? Because the the Cayman's yeah, the yeah, non-convertible, yeah. right? So yeah, so <laughs> it's convertible. It's probably smaller. If I had to take a guess, I would guess the Boxster's probably more expensive. It is. Why are you waffling? There's an obvious answer here. Marco, finish your thought. Then I want to hear the obvious answer. So get the M2. That's not it. That's not the answer. The correct answer is to get. <laughs> first of all, don't get the new generation Boxster, like the one with the the turbo engine. Get the previous generation Boxster. If it's still on sale, if not, get like a used one. 
that's the obvious choice. It's so much better than the M2 in every possible way. Well, the car it will make you happier. Because if you're already shopping for M2 or Boxster, you're already not looking for like, oh, I need something to haul the groceries to the kids. Get the previous generation non-turbocharged uh, Boxster. Well, so again, having driven none of these two cars, and now the third I'm about to mention, why get the Boxster when you can get the Cayman? Isn't the Cayman better in every way and it has all the same advantage as the Boxster? Well, this person wants a convertible, obviously, if yeah. they're shopping Boxster. I mean, it's convertible. The top comes, it's, it's a big difference. If you're shopping a convertible, you're not confused about whether you're not, you want a convertible. You want a convertible. Nobody wants a convertible. People like them. No, no. It's no. the convertible. It's it's one of those decisions that you should you should sway people away from. Like, no, you trust me. You don't want a convertible. No, they're it's, well. This person wants one, and I think it's fine. And the box the boxer is just a more special car. Yes, it is more expensive. The M2 is a good car. If you were shopping like M2 versus M3, then we could have a real discussion. But if it's M2 versus Boxster, no contest. Boxster, previous gen. <laughs> I know you want to wear socks with sandals, but trust me, you don't want to wear socks with sandals. You don't want a convertible. Convertibles are not socks with sandals. Convertibles are fun experiences. We're not talking about like Jaguar convertibles from the 80s that are going to leak water all over you and short out. The modern convertibles are fine. No, they're not. They're never fine. I don't know. Convertible is a fine car in general. I really do like convertibles. Um, but yeah, this particular individual, uh, let's just say that they're always on vacation. So um, it, it would make sense for this particular individual to be shopping a uh, convertible. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I was just curious. Uh, years ago in like, I don't know, 2005, I, uh, uh, a friend of a friend had a Boxster S. And this was when they were still pretty new. And... Um, I drove that Boxster S and I got in that car thinking, oh, this is just an imposter 911. I'm going to hate this piece of garbage. And oh my God, did I love it. It was phenomenally good. I was stunned. I could see how the non-S Boxster would be kind of a dog and kind of boring, but um, man, the Boxster S was nice. This was way back in 05. I haven't uh, driven an M2. Um, There is a friend at work that has an M235i that I have yet to drive, but uh, he promised me I could at some point. And this obviously is just that, but more. Um... But yeah, the, the old Boxsters anyway were super nice. I'm curious to see how this new one is. We are also sponsored this week by Warby Parker, who makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Go to warbyparker.com slash ATP and order your free home try-ons today. Warby Parker offers contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and fashion-forward. Glasses should be affordable enough that they can be viewed as a fashion accessory, not costing as much as like an iPhone. So Warby Parker offers prescription eyeglasses starting at just $95, including prescription lenses. They also offer prescription and non-prescription sunglasses. So even if you're 2020, like me, as long as I don't go to an eye doctor and get my you know denial report that I'm actually not, there's still something for you <laughs> at Warby Parker. Now, whether your eyesight is pretty good or absolutely abysmal, Casey, Warby Parker has you covered <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with, sorry, with a wide it's range true. of prescription options from simple reading glasses to advanced digital freeform progressive lenses. And for those of you with very strong prescriptions, they also offer ultra-thin high-index lenses. Now, buying glasses online sounds tricky, but Warby Parker makes it easy and risk-free with this home try-on program. This lets you order up to five pairs of glasses to evaluate for free. They ship the frames to you for free. You get to try them on in the comfort of your own home for free. You can keep the frames for up to five days to think about it. Then you just send them back again for free with a prepaid return label with no obligation to purchase anything after all that. If they aren't for you, you can stop right there. You spent nothing. If they are for you, Warby Parker will get started on your order right away. They can get prescription glasses to you within 10 business days and usually even faster than that. So whether you could use a nice pair of eyeglasses, reading glasses, or sunglasses, go to warbyparker.com slash ATP. Order your free home try-ons today with free shipping both ways and no obligation to buy. 
Once again, warbyparker.com slash ATP. Thanks to Warby Parker for sponsoring our show. Quick follow-up on the uh, neutral thing. Apparently, the 2016 model is the bad Boxster. It's when they added 718 to the public-facing name, the Porsche 718 Boxster. That's the 2016 model. Don't get that one. You want the 2015 <laughs> Boxster, which ju- doesn't have a number in the name. It does have a number. 981 is the, the number behind the scenes, but it's just called Boxster. So it's confusing, I know, because car model years always are, and they do look very similar. But the 2016 one with the uh, turbo four-cylinder engine, thumbs down. So uh, we thought the neutral part of the show was over, but turns out it's not. Uh, Apple has hired somebody from QNX, which is interesting. So QNX is a company that makes an operating system also called QNX. And that operating system, uh, I understand to run a bunch of embedded systems, not the least of which is, is it the entertainment system in cars or is it the actual like ECU in cars? I don't think it's well. It might be the ECU, but I think what uh, it's most known for is like uh, the, the reason Q- people care about QNX at all is because it's a real time operating system. So you would never need a real time operating system to run like your infotainment because those things are just slow as molasses anyway. Oh my god, so slow! Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes about what uh, the Wikipedia entry on real time operating system, which describes it pretty well. But basically, a real time operating system is the only situation where you can make guarantees about when things will happen. So you can say. We, we, we guarantee that this thing will be serviced in a, a maximum of this amount of time, right? If it's hard real time and soft real time, soft real time, uh, you know, tries very hard to to give, uh, you know, computing time to certain things on certain intervals and hard real time is like, look, this is a, a, a part of the system. You are going to be able to service this in a certain interval at minimum and use hard real time systems for things like space probes or flight control systems where you can't have like, a space probe whizzing around uh, the solar system and have it go to do something that has to be done with millisecond precision and then have a, a memory allocation happen or an interrupt happen when you didn't expect it and not have your routine serviced for an extra couple of milliseconds because there was like a little hiccup, right? On our personal computers, those little hiccups and glitches happen all the time. But in real-time operating systems, especially hard real-time operating systems, the, the whole design is made so that can't happen ever. Um, and the reason this comes up for automotive things is there are some things in automotive systems that are like that, uh, you know, anti-lock brakes, possibly also engine control, things where you can't ever have any kind of hiccup. You always have to have things done uh, on a certain timeline within a certain deadline with some fuzz on either side of it. But like there are limits that uh, you you need things to happen right now, guaranteed every single time, no possibility that it could it could happen. So. Uh, I think we talked about this when we were talking about like what kind of what could Apple bring to cars with software, and we talked a lot about like like markers of the infotainment systems and the UI and the things that Tesla does on its big touchscreen. That's all well and good, and Apple will probably be good at that. And you could basically run iOS on that, and you'll be fine. But for the other parts of the car, the driving parts, whether they be self-driving or just simply driver aids or smart cruise control or engine control and stuff like that, that stuff has to be real time because it's a safety issue. You can't have you know, you can't have any like stutter or whatever that you see in, in regular operating systems. And, you know, operating systems like OS ten do have things where they try to give you guaranteed times like audio processing. But anyone who's ever used audio on a Mac knows that it's not a hard real time operating system. You can get it into situations where you have underflow and you have a little stutter and, you know, your disk isn't fast enough or whatever. Parts of the whole chain can fall down to give you a failure in whether it be audio or video. But a hard real-time system just simply can't do that. It has to give guaranteed time slices 
to uh, all the software that's running, which means it's much a very different thing for you to create. You wouldn't create a real-time operating system, even for something like the watch, it would be silly. Um, but it's very different than anything Apple has ever created, to my knowledge. And so that's why it's interesting to see this person who, I think there was like the, the founder of QNX or yep, some, that's right. some big wig in QNX. It's not like he's the one writing the real-time operating system, but... He was. Well, in the beginning, but you know what I mean. Like now I'm sure <laughs> Apple's not hiring him to write their operating system. But sure. if you're going to hire someone to be in charge of the real-time operating system effort uh, for your car or whatever, the guy who was the founder uh, of QNX is a pretty darn good hire. Yeah, and uh, real-time follow-up uh, from Wikipedia, where everything is guaranteed to be true. At the Geneva Motor Show, Apple demonstrated CarPlay, which provides an iOS-like user interface to head units and compatible devices. Once configured by the manufacturer, QNX can be programmed to hand off its display and certain functionality to an Apple CarPlay device. So it seems, at least for now, that QNX will be used for CarPlay, but like John has, has described, maybe even more than that. And BlackBerry bought QNX. Like, it's not as if you, you QNX is only useful for real time. Like, BlackBerry brought them as like, oh, they can be our phone OS. Like, it, the QNX is a flexible operating system. You make do whatever you want. But uh, for if Apple's ever going to do any self-driving stuff or even just like the, the you know, the, the barrier to entry for just a basic car with simple smart cruise control and lane departure warning and stuff like that, or even just anti-lock braking systems or whatever, you need a real-time operating system to do that type of functionality. Um, and... The question was always, is Apple going to invent one in-house? Does it already have one in-house? Is it going to... I mean, obviously, it, did, it just bought this... It hired this guy. It didn't buy QNX. I forget who owns the assets of QNX. Maybe is BlackBerry still around? I guess they still own it at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this is a problem that they need solved if they're ever going to make a car, like an actual complete car instead of just like some component of a car, the software system for a car. Um, so th- I think this is the first public signal that they are serious about this aspect of the car as opposed to all the rumors like well of course it's going to be self-driving and of course it's going to do that this hire really only makes sense in that in the context of uh car software that does the car stuff the safety related car stuff yeah and the gentleman's name is dan dodge for the record the unfortunate name for car. <laughs> well he ended up in automotive sort of so i guess that makes sense right i know but dodge is not really the the uh, brand that apple probably wants to evoke Eh, I don't know. Whatever. I, I, I'm at least in part a product of a Mopar family, so nobody's perfect. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, like you said, John, I think what's most interesting about this to me is that it's a public signal that Apple is moving towards automotive. I mean, sure, you could interpret this in many other ways. Sure, QNX does seem to underpin BlackBerry 10 or the the newest BlackBerry operating system, I think. But anyway, the point is, all signs point to this being an automotive-related hire and and a high-profile one. So I don't know whether there's smoke, there's fire, and there's ever-increasing amounts of smoke. It seems like Apple is kind of like decreasingly uh, coy about their car plans. They're like they're just not even denying them anymore. And they're just like, yeah, okay, you guys all know we're making a car, right? <laughs> and something they could do, which is definitely an Apple move, is for the first car that comes out in 2020 or whatever, like if they're just starting their real-time operating system ever now, it's not going to be ready in time for that, right? So what they can do is release a car that's not self-driving, that merely uses third-party components for its engine control and its anti-lock brakes and its airbags and it's smart cruise control. These are all things that you can buy, you know, from various manufacturers off the shelf. Then Apple does the CarPlay part of the car, right? And UI and all the things that are not real time that are just, you know, UI type things. And that's still a perfectly good Apple car. 
And in the meantime, over the next three or four or five years, they work on their self-driving thing with their own real-time operating system. It's kind of like the iPod approach of where, you know, they, they have that PixOS thing or whatever that they from a third party that they licensed and use in their iPods. But when it came time to do the iPhone, they didn't port that over. Uh, although that was one of the competing options internally, they, they did their own thing. It takes a long time to do your own thing. I'm not sure, depending on what stage they're at now, if, if, if that is coming on board to shepherd their multi-year running real-time operating system effort to just make sure like it's on track and to you know get it going then maybe they can hit 2020 but if they're just starting their effort now and staffing up i don't think they're going to be ready in time for a car in 2020 and i don't think they need to be because nobody has produced a completely self-driving car at this point they can drive on any roads and i don't think apple's going to in 2020 either so it might be smart to put out a car that is impressive and good in all the ways that apple's cars can be good but that apple outsources all the parts that it's not innovating in essentially like they don't have any particular innovation to add to anti-lock braking or, or adaptive cruise control or engine control. And so there's no reason for them to put their own operations. In fact, it's a huge risk to do that. Just there are third party vendors who make parts for the rest of the car industry that you can buy those things from both software and hardware. And they should just do that and put all their effort into the design of the car and the UI and the parts that they're good at. Uh, all right. So I guess we're out of the neutral portion of the show, which means I only have one thing left to talk about, and then we might have to go through the stupid TiVo section. <sighs> I offered, I can explain the MP3 file format to you if you want and why podcasts apparently aren't and maybe can't be VBR. Oh yeah. Where did that go? That was in the show notes. Then it disappeared. <laughs> John demoted it right before the show. Uh, I almost demoted the Swift thing too, because I don't think there's much to say, but you put it there, Casey. So what do you have to say about Swift, the Swift update? It's going to be quick, to be honest. Mostly, I just wanted to hear, <laughs> hear your reaction to the line about uh, the, the goal being to be better at regular, or what was it, regular expressions than Perl? Wait, you don't me... even remember it. I'm, I'm, read, I'm on the Swift evolution mailing list. I read all these things. I'm, I am soaking in it. There's nothing you can tell me about <laughs> Swift that is going to be a surprise. That's a reference to an ad that was on before you were both born delightful anyway so uh tell me john what you think about this claim that swift will be better than string processing than Perl. it's not a claim it's a goal and a goal is not a promise if you would know if you read the, yes, the thing. yes i like, did read it i did read yeah, it i'm yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to i'm just trying to get you get a rise out of you anyway tell me about it yeah no but it, it's fine so like swift 3 that had a lot of lofty goals some of them they missed particularly abi stability they didn't get um, not API, ABI, Application Binary Interface, which basically means can Apple build a library in Swift and ship it with their operating system and then people ship applications that link to that binary and then can they update that binary in the next version of the operating system and not break people's applications because the applications are linking into the library and expecting things to be in certain places and find certain symbols. How do you update that? You need ABI stability. If you change the calling convention to your, for your libraries and you release a new version of that library... Uh, it will break everybody's applications because their binaries expect to call into it in a different way. So Swift is still at the point where they haven't nailed that down. Um, and they wanted to do that for Swift 3, but they didn't make it. A lot of the things they did do in Swift 3 are the reason, because they're still trying to nail down generics and some other features that affect uh, ABI and also this resiliency stuff where it's like, if we change aspects of the language, uh, again, can can we make a new version of the library and have the old applications still work with it? This is important for, it's mostly important for an OS vendor because that's what Apple does. They ship libraries like UIKit and many other, you know, that's an umbrella framework, but whatever. Um, huge libraries that applications link against. Individual application developers, for the most part, unless they have like a suite of applications and they have their own frameworks that they share between them, you can always, as an application vendor, just statically link your whole thing, but you're going to dynamically link to the OS libraries. But 
up until this point, everyone shipping a Swift app was sort of shifting shipping uh, with the entire Swift standard library as part of their application because it was the only safe way to do that. And that's sort of untenable even for applications uh, to be shipped that way. So Apple's going to fix that problem in Swift 4. That is now their goal for Swift 4. They still have some issues to work out, leftover stuff from Swift 3 to make that possible. And they're trying to do Swift 4 in two phases. One is like the important stuff, and then, then is like the, thr- the frills. Interestingly, the in the important stuff section, the stage one of Swift 4 was the thing that Casey was talking about, is that they're going to take another crack at their strings. They've changed their strings a couple times already, and they're going to fiddle with them again. And their goal is to be as good at string handling as Perl is, which is actually a fairly lofty goal, because Perl, for all its historic weirdness, is actually really fast at dealing with strings and can do things that most other languages can't do in terms of Unicode um, and all sorts of cool stuff like that. All right, so hold on. I, I was going to ask you about this. I, I Now I am not trying to needle you. I'm honestly asking. What makes Perl so good at string processing? I know that like regular expressions, expressions are, I guess, like a first-class citizen or something, but I've written very little Perl in my life, and it was a long time ago. So can you give like an executive summary of what makes Perl so darn good at this? Because it seems universally accepted that it is. So why? Well, there's two aspects. One is string representation, which is weird in Perl for historical reasons and is actually very complicated. But for example, in a language like Objective C that doesn't sort of have native strings, like you've got you know char- character pointers, which are no good for you because we live in the modern world, and then you've got <laughs> NS string, and NS string is like UTF-16 under the covers, and there's all sorts of methods to get what you want, but it's not a particularly efficient format. If you had to pick, like you would never pick UTF-16 as an internal representation format because it's just not, it's not the way to do things in, in the modern world. It's bigger than you want it to be. It's still not fixed size because you have things that, that take, you know, it's not every one of the, you know, you have characters that take multiple uh, uh, sets of, of uh, bytes. And, you know, it's not it's not uniform like an array. Like it has all the disadvantages, none of the advantages. Um, Perl's representation used to just be bag of bytes and they were smart enough to switch to UTF-8 internally. Perl can do everything every other uh, language can in terms of it has libraries that you could encode and decode however you want. Uh, the way you want to write things in Perl is when you pull data into Perl from whatever, from the disk, from the network, or whatever, that's string data, you have to know the encoding, obviously, because otherwise, how do, you, how do you know how to deal with it? And you want to sort of decode it into Perl's internal representation. Then all through your Perl program, you want to deal with, I don't know what you want to call them, like Perl strings, where they they are just strings that Perl understands that you don't have to deal with the encoding. And all of Perl's functions in terms of regular expressions and substring matching and all sorts of other stuff, deal with them as logical sets of characters, or I don't want to call them characters, but anyway, as Unicode code points, right? And when you output them, whether it be a disk file or a terminal or over the network, whatever, at that point, you decide how you want to encode it for a transmission. You turn it back into a byte sequence, whether it be UTF-8, 16, so on and so forth. And because the modern world basically uses UTF-8 everywhere, and Perl, uh, you know, secret, secret, unbeknownst to you, uses UTF-8 internally as its internal representation, you can go through that whole cycle without ever having to encode and decode, which is not the case for NSString, which isn't a native feature of Objective-C. And every time you come from UTF-8 into NSString and from NSString back to UTF-8, it's an expensive process. Um, So that's just like at the most fundamental level. Why is it convenient to deal with stuff in Perl? Because they picked a good internal representation format because they have a system that says we decode on the way in, 
our entire working with the string in the program. You don't have to worry about the representation, but trust us, it'll be efficient. And on output, you encode to whatever you want it to be. And that's a no-op if it's UTF-8 through the whole way. And then after that, it's like, okay, well then, your representation is good. Your algorithms are efficient in terms of pre-allocating buffers for strings when you start appending and it realizes you're going to keep appending, so pre-allocate it, you know, like all sorts of smart things like that. Perl's regular expression engine is, you know, the, the gold standard of, of regular expression engines in terms of the number of years that have been put into both the syntax and the engine itself with all sorts of crazy efficiencies where it can look at your regular expression and figure out, you know what, I can see that there's a faster way to do this than using, uh, you know, just a regular regular expression engine. I can do something simpler because I can uh, shortcut this by looking at the anchor and optimizing it to an index lookup or use a DFA when it's faster than an NFA regex engine because I can look at the regular expression. Like, it's very clever optimizations for a regular expression engine in addition to all of the features. Um, I think what they're talking about for the Swift stuff is they just want their sw- strings to be as powerful as Perl strings. It's convenient to deal with. They have all the nice convenient methods for doing things and that when you use those methods, things are fast. Because you can get into trouble really fast with strings if you have to keep changing representation internally or if your internal representation is weird and anytime you have to do any operation, you have to like walk the whole string to find boundaries between things or whatever. Um, there's lots of Lots of chances for inefficiency. Or even if just like you have a string and you're repeatedly appending and making a bigger and bigger string, that could be massively inefficient too if you're not careful about how you allocate memory. Um, so Perl, for all of its weirdness, and there is weirdness related to this that I didn't want to go into, um, <laughs> is very fast and has like all the features you could possibly imagine, some of which may be obscure, but th- that's what Swift is going for. They want to be faster than NS string, which they didn't list because they're not going to throw their own stuff under the bus now, much, but <laughs> faster and better than NS string native to the language uh and really efficient internally with lots of operations and then regular expressions were in the phase two where it's like that's a nice to have we just need to get the string representation and the basic features down and then we can add regular expressions at any point after that and that's a whole other project of like how do we make a really fast regular expression engine but that's that's in the phase two box the phase two is the goodies and the phase one is like eat your vegetables and get get our house in order get our abi stability <laughs> down figure out what generic is going to be and by the way uh async stuff that's that's even farther in the history it's not even going to be in swift 4 probably no like i saw async await and i actually didn't get to use that too much in my c-sharp days but i know enough to know that that's super awesome but you know what i did use a lot in my c-sharp days and i'm really excited about reflection we're super stoked about that. Was that in stage one? I forget. Was reflection in stage one? Stage two. Um, so reflection is basically, a, it allows you to, it allows your code to look at itself, hence reflection, and make decisions about things. And um, I think I like it so much because it's my favorite hammer. And so everything looks like a, a nail to me. And there's certainly appropriate times and ways to use reflection and inappropriate times and ways to use reflection. But there, there are some times, and I can't think of a contrived example right off the top of my head, but there are some times when, when reflection is a very powerful way to solve a problem. And I think a lot of the uh, kvetching that was going on in the past about how Swift is not dynamic enough for some of the uh, uh, developers, particularly generally speaking, the old Objective C guard. Uh, a lot of that would potentially, a lot of that complaining would potentially go away with more robust reflection because there is some support in Swift, but it's really, really crappy. Uh, Swift today, but it's really crappy. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited about uh, what's coming. I think um, everything in this post by Chris Latner, um, which we'll link in the show notes 
all of it is worth reading. Uh, I don't think there's any really wasted words, and I'm really curious to see where this goes. It seems like they're learning from their mistakes. They're learning from over-promising and under-delivering. Um, or maybe it seems from their perspective, they didn't necessarily promise ABI stability in three, but they didn't do a good job of stating what their intention was. Whether or not you agree with that, whatever. But the point is they're trying to be a lot better about that in the future. ABI stability was a goal of Swift 3, but when they got, as they got into Swift 3, they, I think they realized a couple of things. One, uh, the the appetite for syntax changes in Swift seems to be waning. Like, as in people are kind of like, I just learned Swift 2 or Swift 2.1 or 2.0, we're going to change it again in Swift 3. And so there was kind of eventually a, a rush to say, look, this is probably our last big chance to change syntax stuff. So everybody, let's, like, if there's any other syntax crap in the language, oh, we're using equals here, or we should have used colons, or casing of things is inconsistent between this and that, and picking new keywords, like, now is the time to do it. So I spent a lot of time in Swift 3 doing syntax-breaking changes, non-backward-compatible changes to the language itself, to the characters that you type to make your programs, because they're trying to really say, we got a little, you know, a little trailing end of syntax changes, and then we're shutting the door on that, and we're saying... Not that we're never going to have them again, but they're, they're going to have to be really, you know, they have to be really justified. There has to be a really strong reason to do them. We're going to try to maintain source compatibility from here on. So there's a big rush to get those things in. And then the second part is when dealing with the ABI stuff, they still hadn't sorted out all of their generic system and other things that, that affect the ABI because they have to figure out uh, what kind of things are we going to be calling in what ways and everything before they can nail down the, the ABI. And if they hadn't sorted out that part of the language, it's impossible to do the ABI. So it was kind of like they weren't ready to do the ABI yet because they had other things that they had to do first. Not like they went off into the weeds and were dancing through the daisies and doing other frivolous <laughs> things, right? They realized that actually we're not at the point yet where we can do ABI stability. We haven't figured out all these things that are prerequisites for it. So they spent all their time trying to sort of get all that painful stuff out of the way and do all the, and they're still doing that and do all the prerequisites. And then hopefully in the, in the Swift 4 stage one time frame, they will have all that. I'm not sure, you know, again, they, they were trying to be careful and say this is a goal or whatever, uh, not a promise. It's still not a promise for the Swift stage one thing. Who knows how this will turn out? Because you can't, like, the worst mistake they can make is to rush the ABI stability and be stuck with a dumb calling convention that prevents them from adding features later. So this is like the most important time to not rush to nail things down and set it in concrete. Because once you do that and Apple starts shipping frameworks that people link their apps against, that's it. You can't renege on that. You can't like, oh, we're breaking all your apps in this next release, recompile everything, right? They, I mean, they really, really don't want to do that. It kind of like, you know, for, for an OS vendor, for a platform vendor, API promises are something you really don't want to break. Uh, or if you do break them, you want to do a Carbon 64 and break it before you actually ship to customers. And they're still pissed off about that because they all uh, develop their applications against it and plan their products and so on and so forth. But it's even worse if you ship it to customers and then a year later say, oh, you know what? All your apps don't work anymore when people update their operating system. Sorry about that. So this is really <laughs> a, a critical time in Swift, and it's much, much better for them to continue to miss dates and to make sure they have it solid because once you set this in stone and start shipping it in frameworks, that's it for many, many, many years. Yeah, it makes sense. Marco, I know you have a lot to add on this. Uh, what would you like to add about this whole Swift thing? <laughs> Our final sponsor tonight is Eero. 
Despite its importance in everyday life, Wi-Fi is broken. Wi-Fi never reaches your entire house. You have slow zones, you have dead zones, and you try to try to solve it with these routers that have like six antennas on them. They look like these crazy things, and every router claims, oh, now, now we have increased range. And it just doesn't work very well when you only have one access point. It just doesn't work. The single router model in practice, cannot cover your whole house very well for most people. So what you need is a distributed system of multiple Wi-Fi routers. And Eero makes this really, really easy with these nice small devices, and they sell them to you in any quantity you want. You can buy just one if you want. You can also buy like two, three, five. They recommend one per thousand square feet in your house, so most houses will need two or three of them. These are like these are these little tiny routers about the size of an Apple TV, and you just plug them in. Now, one of them you plug into your internet connection. The other ones you can you can just plug them into any outlet in your house, and they communicate with the other ones wirelessly, and they build this little mesh network so that you don't have to be running Ethernet wires all over your house to have multiple access points. And the way they do it with this mesh network, it's actually faster than you'd think. Like it isn't just like a repeater; they actually do this kind of side network thing that's way faster than like a, a simple repeater would be. And you guys have Eros. This works pretty well for you, right? Yep, yep. I have uh, a set that they sent me of three, and uh, I plugged them in thinking, oh, I'll just try this out so I can talk about it on the sponsor read. Then I'll go back to my actually relatively old uh, Airport Extreme. And the, I'm looking at my ear, one of my three Eros right now because it's sitting right next to me because I like it enough that I never disconnected it. So the management through the iOS app is great. It's simple in a good way, and I really like it. I did the same thing. I, I, I hooked them up thinking, oh, I'll try them out for, you know, because they're a sponsor. They're still hooked up. There's, and I also still have my other router connected. I have them in bridge mode. Like, not that I would recommend doing this. Really, you should just get these and they will do everything. But because I have all these rules in my airport router, you can set it up in bridge mode. So I have my previous wireless router not doing anything wireless anymore. And those things do wireless everywhere. And I, I can't go back to not having, you know, five little fan-shaped thingies everywhere in my house. Yeah, I mean, Eero, it's such a better system than just having one router. And all the, you know, the reviews are, are stellar for a reason. It really works, and it's really good. So check it out today. Go to Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com. And our special offer now is you can get free overnight shipping. So if you pick, if you pick overnight shipping, then enter coupon code ATP, and then it becomes free shipping. So Eero.com, E-E-R-O.com, pick overnight shipping, and then enter code ATP to make that shipping free. Thanks a lot to Eero for sponsoring our show. It's time, whether you end the show or not, because if you try to end the show now, it's just going to be in the after show, but that's still part of the show, but it's time. So the thing of it is, I swear to God, this is true. <laughs> I opened an iMessage window and started writing to Marco, you should just end the show after the Swift update. I know, I know your plan. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you do it. You go ahead, end the show. We're just going to do it in the after show. I didn't send it. Well, I, was go- I was going to have, you know, I was going to... I was going to tell him just do it, just end the show, and then we'll do it in the after show. But it'll it'll be a funny moment. But then, as I was typing that iMessage, I swear to God, this is true. I was I was I was typing the iMessage. It occurred to me we had one more sponsor to do, and then I've resigned myself to my fate. John, tell us everything that I'm so excited to know about TiVo. Wait, you don't want to hear about MP3 file formats? I would love to, but somebody <laughs> had to move it down. No, that doesn't deserve the place that it got. That's that's down by how we handle email now. Uh... TiVo! TiVo was purchased Yay. by Rovi a long, long time ago. So long. In April, maybe? <laughs> a long time ago. I tried so hard, you guys. Let's go over the list of things that have happened since then. 
Yeah, Rovi is used to be uh, Gemstar. If anyone remembers them, they make like uh, on-screen TV guides, like that big grid where you pick stuff from channels. And Macrovision. Do either you two actually remember Macrovision? Like when it was a thing? I do. No. It was like copy protection for VHS tapes, like analog copy protection. So that if you bought a VHS that had a movie on it, and you tried to make a copy of it and didn't have the right equipment, the copy would have all these little fuzzy things on it. It wouldn't look good. It was very silly. Yeah, it, would, it has this, it had this weird, like alternating bright and dark line that was in the overscan range of the TV picture, so that it wouldn't show up on a TV. But the idea was to throw off the automatic gain control of the VCR because it would it would oscillate for, like from bright to dark and show weird things in this one line. So it would be like, all right, well, the, the maximum brightness of the signal is really high right now, so turn the automatic gain control down, and then like then it would go back low, and then all right, now turn turn the automatic gain control up. And so if you made a copy of a movie with this with the VCR. In, you know, most VCRs would try to automatically balance the brightness of the picture. The movie would just oscillate every few seconds from light to dark and light to dark as it was adjusting for this line that was actually off screen. Yeah, the copy protection has always been crappy. But anyway, this is the company that bought TiVo. It's kind of similar to how the MP3 file format works, actually. Uh, if you go, yeah, tell me more. Uh, no, we're not talking about that now. Um, so the company uh, Rovi is a combination of GemStar and Macrovision. So this is not a company that really makes products that people love like who love macrovision i guess content owners did i mean throw in rambus and you have like you know rambus and lodsis and then you have really a favorite team here but rambus made like in theory you know their patents were used in products that people liked but yeah until they were convicted for fraud because yeah, of yeah. patent dealings did anyone <laughs> like the you know the gemstar on-screen tv guides like the, the gemstar stuff is enterprise software it was sold to people who make cable boxes and macrovision was licensed to people who you know uh you know content owners for making their thing so this is the company that bought tivo just give a very very brief tivo recap for people who don't know what tivo is because it's an increasingly large number of people (laughs) tivo was one of the original and probably the best known makers of dvrs digital video recorders which is like a vcr but instead of recording television onto a bunch of tapes it records a video onto your hard drive uh, in the beginning, they, were, they would take analog video in and record it onto a hard drive, and eventually they worked with cable cards and digital stuff or whatever. Um, and not a lot of people bought TiVos in the grand scheme of things. People who bought them early on, early adopters, it like changed their lives. Um, it changed our lives. We we bo- got one around the same time we had kids when we couldn't like schedule your lives around like, oh, a television show is going to be on at 8. I better be at the TV at 8. Like That's impossible with children. So uh, yeah, along with getting a digital camera, getting a TiVo around the same time we had kids was a really smart move because now we no longer had to be on the schedule of televisions. And it really totally changed your life in terms of how you deal with television everyone who has a tivo especially if you bought it early on like the fact that you could pause live television that you record anything you want that you could choose the shows you wanted to record by picking the shows instead of programming your vcr to say record channel four at 8 p.m and stop recording at 9 p.m and you wouldn't have to do that it just had a built-in guide that showed up in the shows you could do a season pass for a show to say i want to watch the x-files whenever the x-files on is recorded only record the new episodes don't record the repeats all sorts of good stuff like that um, it just became the way we watch television. You never actually watch live television anymore. And of course, the most important feature is uh, the skip button where you could skip 30 seconds at a time. So you wouldn't have to see any commercials because your DVR, your TiVo would record the commercials, but you would skip over them when you watch because who wants to watch that? The current version of TiVo has a series, I'm assuming a series of humans, figuring out where all the commercial break boundaries are in shows. So now when you're watching 
TiVo, when the commercials start, you can hit one button. It just jumps past all the commercials in a single button press. You may ask yourself, hey, why do I have to even push the button? Why doesn't the TiVo just excise the commercials for me? Well, Replay TV did something like that, a competitor to TiVo, and they got sued out of existence. So TiVo is kind of dancing around that. But anyway, I love TiVos. I keep buying them. I always buy the most expensive, biggest, best TiVo I possibly can. And when a new one comes out, I buy that one and keep replacing them. Um, They're fairly expensive. There's either a monthly fee or you pay a huge amount of money for like lifetime service. And I usually just do that because, you know, we use the TiVos and they just rotate around the house. Um, I'm a big proponent of TiVo. For many, many years, I've complained that their software and hardware has been terrible. For the amount of money you pay, it should be incredibly fast and responsive. And it hasn't been. They've improved that in recent years, but apparently not enough to make people buy their products. Um, So um, if you listen to I don't know, hypercritical of me complaining about TiVo or many podcasts have complained about it. It's the same way we complain about Apple. It's like, it's a product, well, for me anyway, it's a product I love that I think is the best in the industry, but that it could be better in obvious ways. Um, And I've always complained that the company seems not to know how to be successful and doesn't understand what it's got. Like many times I was asking them to charge me more money for a higher end product that had higher margins. Like I was ready and willing to pay, but apparently they were going down market to try to grow their... um, their user base anyway everything they did didn't work they were never able to really make any money their streaming services came and started to eat their lunch um, and i was sad about that because i think you know until the cable companies release their death grip on all the content that we all love which is happening slowly like a lot of a lar- increasing number of the shows that i watch are not on quote-unquote tv like stranger things that i just watched is on netflix uh and not anywhere else orange is the new black house of cards uh what was that uh Man in the High Castles and Amazon. There is lots of original content coming there, but there's still a lot of stuff that's only on television. HBO, now Marco can get the HBO thing that he can never remember the name of, but it's now the one that doesn't require (laughs) you to have the uh, the cable subscription, right? So things are happening to eventually take us out of the death grip of cable companies, but for many, many years, and still today in many, uh, depending on what shows you're interested in, the only place to get this content is on television. The only place to get it in real time, in high quality, without having to wait, you know, is on television. And the only civilized way to watch television, in my opinion, is to use a TiVo, not to use the DVR that comes from your cable company, which are universally very bad. But TiVo has been bought by this company, and the question was, well, what is Rovi going to do with them? Rovi mostly licenses intellectual property and does their on-screen guide stuff. It doesn't look promising. Rovi has a lot of patents. TiVo has a lot of patents related to DVR stuff. So everyone's worried, like, oh, they just bought TiVo for the patents. There were a couple of good signs when they bought them. By the way, they bought them for $1.1 billion, which is not, you know, it's not bad. That's like an Instagram in a bit, right? <laughs> for a company that everyone thought, like, TiVo, are they still in business? It's, it's pretty good because they have a lot of important patents. They're also taking the name of TiVo, which I thought was a good sign. Like, Rovi didn't buy them and say the TiVo name is no more. Now it's just Rovi, and we will just stop selling. TiVo will stop selling hardware to customers, and we will just stop everything about the company and just like license the patents and become like a patent troll or whatever. Um, but the fact that they're taking the name TiVo over the new company, uh, is, I thought was a good sign, at least in their initial announcement. Then they started saying, well, we, we don't really feel like we might, we have to make these plastic boxes with hard drives in them and give them to customers. Cause that came, seems like a loser business to us. So we're looking into other options and people are panicking like, Oh no, like when my TiVo dies, will I not be able to, buy another box that does the same thing this is my big fear because we're a tivo household 
and we keep buying them. And if I ever, ever catch wind of that happening, kind of like with the plasmas, when I knew Panasonic was stopping making plasmas, I'm going to buy like three of these things and just hope they continue to work until, you know, they'll, they'll break. Right. Wait, aren't, aren't they dependent on a service run by TiVo? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, I, I feel like that's a surmountable problem where like, I don't know what their, their commitments are legal, uh, legally to the people who bought their products to keep that service up and running for a certain period of time. But even if they stop selling the plastic boxes, I'm assuming they'll keep running the service first because the service, like if you don't pay for lifetime, you're paying them monthly fee for the service. And it's got to be hugely profitable to just run the service because it's not, you know, whatever the fee is, it's pretty expensive and it's not costing them that much per user to keep the service up and running. So I'm assuming they'll keep the service running for a while, but that, that is very optimistic. Well, so here, here's the, here's the angle. Like the, the statements, the, the most recent statement I've seen from them is, is basically the, the new owners of the company, hinting at the idea that they don't want to make the boxes, but they will gladly let somebody else make a box and TiVo branded, which they've done before. They did the direct TiVo, which was the TiVo branded for direct TV. If you sign up for direct TV, you would get essentially a TiVo box integrated with a direct TV thing in a single unit so that, you know, from your cable company or your television provider, instead of doing the crappy set top box that they have now, they would let them use TiVo software and TiVo services to give you a, tivo powered tivo branded box that is not sold to you by tivo so the kind of like arm where they would just license them the intellectual property the software and the hardware and maybe they would still run the service or whatever but that would give you a larger variety of potential tivo boxes all tied to the cable companies which if i had to pick i'd rather them continue to make their own hardware and just be better at it like that's that's choice number one. Second choice of having a bunch of cable companies make tivo branded boxes that's not terrible, I suppose. The worst is no more TiVo boxes at all, and I have to use the current, you know, cable company DVRs. That's that's my nightmare scenario. So keeps you up at night. It does because, like, this is literally how we watch television in the house. If it's not on Netflix or Amazon Video, it's TiVo. That's how, or Apple TV. You know, Apple TV is just our client box for Netflix or whatever. That's how we watch television in the house, and. I'm I'm just waiting my finger on the trigger to spend like one or two grand on a bunch of the highest end TiVos before they stop making oh them. And God. if I catch wind of that, I'm going to. <laughs> um, I love like like your nightmare scenario. Like it's like one of the reasons why I criticize Apple. You know, we had to throw this into the show somewhere. Uh, one of the reasons why I <laughs> criticize Apple is that I love using the Mac so much, and I worry like if if the Mac ever became something that that I couldn't or didn't want to use anymore for my work. I'd have to switch back to Windows. And the thought of that, I mean, honestly, I might even try Linux instead. Like, the, the thought of going back to Windows is, is so, like, turns my stomach. Uh, that's how little I want to do that. You seem to be having that kind of reaction with the thought of going from a TiVo to, like, the cable company's DVR. You just, you can't go back. Like, just ask anybody who has a TiVo. Like, they'll have complaints about it. It's not the greatest product in the world, but you can't go back to watching regular, like, live television. It's barbaric. Like, first of all, you see commercials, which is, you can't go back to that if you're just used to never, ever seeing commercials. And second of all, like, just losing the ability to pause live television or to skip around and let a buffer queue up, like, you just can't, there's no replacement for that because it was, oh, why don't you just do screaming? Well, you know what it's like when Game of Thrones comes on, like there's no commercials in that to skip, but like I can watch it every time. Whereas when their servers go down because everyone's trying to watch the episode at the same time, I don't have to deal with that. I'm, I'm above the fray on that. Like it is the TiVo for all of its faults and all of its slow software passes the bar of being like, 
as reliable for the most part as TV is supposed to be. When we were growing up, you turn on the television and there's a picture there, right? Especially if you had cable, unless the cable is out, in which case you see nothing, right? But if the cable is not out, you turn it on and the picture is there. And you change the channel and you can see what's on that channel. And it never is buffering and it never can't find the servers and it never asks for your iCloud password and it never does anything. Like, it's just there. Like, it is, it passes that level of reliability. It does way, way more and is only ever so slightly less reliable. I can't remember the last time I had any kind of crash or problem at all with my TiVo. It just sits there like an appliance on all the time, 24 hours a day, never have to do anything to it, and it just runs. Um, and it, it's it's an incredibly high bar. That, and I've, I've been using them since the, the Series 2, which is not the original one, but it was still back in the analog days. And every TiVo box I've had, I've been frustrated that it's not faster and doesn't have better hardware in it, and I can't get it with a faster CPU and more RAM and a bigger hard drive. But other than that, the alternative was just unthinkable to me. So eventually, like when all the streaming services get better and all the content I care about is no longer on quote-unquote real TV, but is all on streaming, then I'll be able to leave TiVo behind. But until then, I want something like that. And back in the old Hypercritical episode uh, about this, I talked about what I really wanted Apple to make. This was back before Apple definitively closed the door on ever doing anything TiVo-like when Steve Jobs went on like one of his uh, was like D3 talks or something like that and basically explained exactly why they're never going to do TiVo box and made me super sad. What I always wanted was a company that's better at this than TiVo to do what I called an omnivorous box because my, my idea back then was like, look, video comes from a million different places. Uh, even back then there was Netflix and there was cable and there was over the air and there was local TV and all sorts of other places where you can get video from and iTunes and all that stuff. And it's like, I don't want to deal with all those places the video comes from. I don't want to deal with 10 remotes. I don't want to deal with 10 services. I don't want to deal with figuring out where it is and how I get it and what input I have to switch to or anything like that. But on the other hand, I realized that all the different people who own those things are never going to get together and say, we should make this easier for customers because everybody owns their different content and their different islands and has their different licensing deals for the NFL and Major League Baseball and all the HBO shows and network programming and all the different channels and cable bundle. Like they're never going to get together. So the only way to solve this technologically is to do what TiVo did, but even bigger, to make a box that will eat any kind of input, an omnivorous box that says, I will sit in front of your television and you just throw all your video crap at me. And then a bunch of people will figure out how to integrate with all those services and they will make the software for it and figure out how to do all the integration. And your only interface will be with that omnivorous box. And it takes in all your input and it can record it locally. It can stream it. It can do everything. And it doesn't matter where it's coming from. To, as far as you're concerned, it's one unified interface. And that's an incredibly hard thing to do. Google tried to do it. TiVo has been trying to do it because you can do Netflix from TiVo and Amazon Video from TiVo and stuff like that, but they're not great at it either. Um, no one has ever made that because it's an incredibly hard problem. And every other one of those companies would be your enemy because they don't want you doing that. They don't want you being the one and only interface television. Like the cable companies want to do it with a set-top box. And Netflix wants to do that and to have your client and everything. Like, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. No one has ever even attempted to do it except for maybe Google, and they failed pretty much miserably. TiVo has come the closest. TiVo does it for plain old cable television, and they were able to do that because of the cable card thing where you can totally replace your... I don't have to have a cable box at all. I haven't had a cable box in my house ever. Maybe I had it when I was in Georgia before I had a TiVo, but since I've had a TiVo, I have not had a cable box in my house, period. I've only had TiVos, which is a thing you can do because of cable card, which is an FCC thing they did, which is not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Um, and the TiVo, it's not omnivorous, but it will accept all like quote unquote real TV input. And then slowly but surely they added features 
for like Netflix clients and Amazon video clients and the ability to play video from one TiVo onto another TiVo. And they added an iOS app, which is actually pretty good where I can do everything on my TiVo from my phone or my iPad anywhere in the world. I can delete shows. I can set up season passes. I can watch video on it from my TiVo anywhere, kind of like Slingbox style. I can, you know, watch shows on one TiVo on the TiVo downstairs. There's little extender boxes you can do if you don't need a full-fledged TiVo. They actually have a pretty good system and a pretty good product at this point. It's just sad that they could never get enough customers to make it work financially. And I really hope that someone would buy them that had a lot of money that could do a really good job with the product. But Apple sort of put its stake in the ground and said, no, we're doing the Apple TV puck thing. We're never going to record locally. We're just going to do streaming. That's the future. Forget about the TiVo thing. And Rovi seems like their plan is we will take a piece of every cable box sold by letting your cable box have TiVo hardware and software in it. And I didn't even get to talk about the remote, which is another TiVo innovation of having an actual good remote with a nice shape and distinct buttons that you can use in the dark by feel. Boy, I, there's a lot of things I like about TiVo and I will be sad when they're gone. And right now with Rovi owning them, it's kind of like a quiet period where nothing is happening, but I just really, really hope that I can still, I'm begging this company, let me give you th- literally thousands of dollars to buy the most expensive DVR with TiVo software that I possibly can that works with my cable cards. And I will keep doing that for a long, long time. Cool. I don't understand why either one of you two don't have TiVo boxes. You can we'll save that for the next episode and follow up. You two can both explain why you don't have TiVos. Oh, I can tell you right now, the Files box is just fine. It's not though. I don't have cable. Yeah, you don't have cable. Right? <laughs> it's a, it's a really quick response. I mean, <laughs> Keisha doesn't care, and I can't use it. So there you go. Actually, all kidding aside, that is the, the executive summary right there. <laughs> But here's the thing, though. For Casey, if you got one, you would never be able to get rid of one. It's just like the Tesla thing. Like, you can't you can't go back. No one gets a TiVo, uses it, and then is like, no, oh, I'll go back to the old way. It's, it's- uh, apparently, a lot of people did. Otherwise, TiVo wouldn't be out of business. No, just not enough people got them to begin with because it was so much more expensive. Like, the cable box is like, oh, it's part of my cable. It's only $10 a month to rent or whatever. And no one does the math to figure out that if you just bought a TiVo, you would have come out of it. Anyway, go ahead. You can end the show. <laughs> <sighs> Thanks to our three sponsors this week. Casper, Warby Parker, and Eero, and we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C USA Syracuse, it's accidental Uh, no, the the FiOS box is not good. I, I, as much as I'm trying to get a rise out of you, it's not good. But no, it's, it's sufficient I mean, for the basic needs that I have. I really think like the Windows comparison here is apt. Like the like every DVR that's not a TiVo is mediocre at best, and, and that's really being generous. Uh, you know, the interfaces to these things are all awful. Um, unlike John, I actually have used and lived with a cable company DVR before, and yeah, like 
you know, they're they're horrible, really. However, most the, the whole reason TiVo doesn't really have much of a business left anymore is because, as you said, like most people don't care. They will just be happy to get the one their cable company offers them for a few dollars extra a month, and that's all they know. That's probably the only kind they've ever seen. It's not, it's not that they don't care. It's just that they, they can't. They don't want to pay more. That's what it comes down to. Because TiVo, you have to pay for the box, which is expensive, and then you have to pay for a monthly service on top of that that's not part of your cable bill, which is the key feature, right? Exactly. And and so, they, yeah, they were just never able to like, they never able to come up with a business model. The customers that they got, for the most part, if you did their customer sat, they'd be super happy, but they could never figure out a way to get people over the barrier. And it was a substantial barrier because the boxes have always been expensive. Lifetime has always been super expensive. And the monthly bills have also, I mean, I think they've gone down, but they used to be like equal to or more than Netflix. And I was like, what am I getting for this? Like, I'm, you know, it was hard to understand what you're even paying for. So it's mostly just a bunch of, you know, rich people essentially who have these boxes and who enjoy them, which is a shame. And the Windows comparison, I would do it like this. I think TiVo is the Windows where it's like, it's good enough. It's like maybe the Windows 95. There is no Apple that's actually good in all respects. <laughs> like there is no iOS. And then the cable boxes are, I guess, like DOS maybe or like punch cards. <laughs> like, you know, and some cable boxes are better than that. Like I've seen I've seen a lot of these cable boxes and I've used them. Some of them have interesting technological solutions. Some of them actually, I think some companies do server side DVRing and then just stream it to you over there, which is an interesting solution to keep hard drives out of people's houses. But the UIs are all terrible. The capacities are like maybe they're okay for regular people, but I feel like part of the thing about TiVo's and part of the reason I think that I think most TiVo customers buy the fancy ones is the people who buy it are like enthusiasts. Essentially, they will. You know, what is the biggest hard drive you can get? The, the biggest hard drive I had in my house was like when they came out with a three terabyte hard drive. Um, this that was the biggest hard drive in my house was the one in my TiVo. And why did I need all that capacity? Because you realize when you have a lot of room you can do things you can treat it differently you can't be like oh i'm just going to do a season pass and then i'll watch them you can record an entire season of a show and just have it sitting there for like the period of time when no new shows are coming out and then just you know and again this is barbaric for people like oh well I, you know netflix has the whole season of house of cards and i can watch it whenever i want why do i need to have it recorded but these are for shows that are not available through streaming or, or are only available through purchase on itunes or are day delayed or whatever like you know again it's getting better Back in the day, there was this was literally the only place to get a lot of stuff. These days, it's almost never the only place, but it is still often the best place. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, I mean the the reason why Apple never got into this business is very obvious. That it, the the DVR as a thing is just an incredible pile of messy hacks. Mm-hmm. Everything about it is a messy hack. But it's a beautiful hack, though. There is no way to make it good. There is no way to make it reliable and and perfect. There's no way to get what like what it tries to do is turn broadcast TV, you know, and whether it's broadcast over the air or cable, I'm not distinguishing here, effectively into on-demand video, but with a ton of asterisks on that. And and where you know it's well, it turns it into on-demand video, sort of, and most of the time. Well, it, it does a phenomenal job with it. The, the only place where it falls down is, like I said, in the it falls down in the omnivorous thing, where it only consumes broadcast television. And with broadcast television, it does a really, really good job. They're really good at that, but it doesn't take input from any other source and treat it the same way. It's like if you want to watch Netflix, oh, you can load the Netflix client and. The Netflix client on TiVo is not good, and neither is the Amazon. Like they're just this is not their strength, right? So there is no omnivorous box. But for broadcast TV, TiVo got pretty darn good at it, and the number of caveats is really small. And if the alternative is just watch it when it's on or use the cable company DVR, it's it's night and day. Ultimately, this is it's a really complex hacky solution 
to a problem that shouldn't really exist and the world is moving away from needing to exist. Yep. Investing in TiVo now would be like investing in cassette tapes in 2002. I mean, yeah, there might still be some uses for them, but it, they're diminishing. It's, it's, it's not as bad as cassette tapes, but here's the thing about that. Like, Apple's Apple decision not to do it, like, they did their own TV thing, which is more forward-looking. That makes sense, right? But this was hacking when it was done with analog standard def video. And if you had said, okay, well, I'm not going to be interested in that because it's not the future, that was, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Like, it's not as if, like, just around the corner. We won't have regular television anymore. There was a long period of time and during like basically my entire children's life, at least a decade, maybe a decade and a half. That's an, 15 years worth of value that they've delivered, making my television watching better. During that time, you could be saying the whole time, well, this isn't the future. This isn't the future. It's like, yeah, but it's the 15 years from like, I'm not going to just throw away the 15 years. I'm not talking about geological time scares. I lived through those 15 <laughs> years. Those are 15 <laughs> important years. Wow. During those 15 years, I had a better experience of watching television. So maybe if you're investing on a 20-year time scale, maybe don't invest in TiVo. But I'm glad some company decided it's worth doing this <laughs> for a 15... I mean, look at how long, you know, classic macOS lasted. It's like, oh, we shouldn't have done that because the future is not this. The future is iOS. Well, iOS is not going to be here until 2007. So why don't you do something between 1984 and then, and uh, and maybe we'll get value out of that. Like because apple only turned its eye to television really late it obviously wasn't the time for them to do that um although i still still think they would have benefited from for example buying them up and uh buying all their patents and assets and having them perhaps design their remote for the apple tv like there's still value that they could have extracted from the company but whatever they wanted to go their own way but i'm glad TV was around for uh, when it was and i still think now there's a place for it it's fading there they should be they should be shown the door eventually but for that to happen Everybody else needs to get on the same page. And right now, like, I would much rather watch Game of Thrones queued up, you know, 10 or 15 minutes because I couldn't get into the room in time on my TiVo because I know 100% reliably I'll be able to watch it. And then I can watch the tears of people as they weep on Twitter trying to load their HBO Now app and they can't get the video to load because lots of people are trying to stream it. Next week, tune in for the best cordless phone to buy for your home. I already did that. I think I bought the wire cutter pick, and I'm not that happy with it, but whatever. <laughs> I Seriously, we did. like. I love that you bought a new cordless phone, like, now. <laughs> no, new cordless phones, plural. <laughs> oh, that makes it so much better. We have to have uh, we have to have landlines because our cell signal is terrible at our house, so we can't reliably just use our cell phones, even though, obviously, we both have cell phones. There are no other solutions to this problem. So we have a landline, but we don't, it's not like we have, like, you know, telephone wire running all over the house, so... Uh, we didn't really need new phones. I think ours were fine. One of them just had a dead battery, but she was annoyed and wanted a new one, so we got all new ones everywhere. <sighs> They're not getting much better. That's another thing of, like, our, our phone, cordless phones getting much better. Not really. They're not really great, but they're cheap, and we got, like, five handsets, and, you know, they're all over the house, and they work fine. And, like, we don't really talk on the phone that much anyway, but anyway, I, d- I did the wire cutter pick, and it was it was all right. I love, John, that you are, that the same man can say... Oh, I must have the best possible version of this antiquated technology. And it's not antiquated, it's it, cutting edge. It's oh god, I just almost all the menus are in HD now. <laughs> Woo. Are you gonna be the one that's buying the accord when everyone else on the planet has a Tesla or other electric vehicle? I'm not buying the accord if it's only C V T, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, god. I have my limits now. It's, it's you know, we'll see. We we know when I'll stop with the accord, but 
Yeah, like I said, I don't have a choice for it. What am I going to do? It's, oh, you shouldn't buy cordless phone. You should do everything on your cell phone. Well, if I want to hear people's voices, I can't. And I can't install new cell towers, so. You can actually install really little ones in your house. The, the little repeated? No, I'm, there's no way in hell I'm doing voice. So that's the thing. I have, My demand is that phone be as reliable as phone. And, and one of those little repeater things that uses your internet connection does not pass that bar for me. You could also just switch to a carrier that actually works in your house, like AT&T. No, I wouldn't do my carrier has the best signal at my house. I'm in a there's a cell phone dead zone nearby me where a certain section of rich people refuse to have cell towers built near their house and their reward is they get no cell signal. I'm not in the I'm not in the actual dead zone, but I'm close enough to it that it's dead-ish. The great thing about it is on, on my thing, I can hear them, but they can't hear a word I say. So they think you're just a really good listener. Now, my wife calls me all the time on my cell phone and I'm at home and I, I say, hello, hello. And she talks, are you there? Are you there? I'm like, I don't know why I bother talking. You can't hear a word I'm saying. I can hear everything you're saying perfectly clearly. It's great.